we are in our second week of an undisclosed, shall we say, number of weeks in the book of Matthew. We think that what Matthew saw as he pulled together the various accounts and stories of Jesus's life, the way he wanted to narrate this biography to us, can inform and shape our lives here and now because we're living lives in the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it. Last week, Curtis talked about Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus's cousin John the Baptist carried the message to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And the key takeaway for us was what that kingdom was, where God's goodness and justice become realities for all people, where life is abundant. And of course, those walking on a path that leads away from God, away from that life, really should stop, turn around, and come a different way. That turn, that change in direction, that movement toward God is what the word repent means. So that was the first question to answer. What is this kingdom of heaven that Matthew puts at the center of his story? Now comes a companion question. How does this kingdom become a reality? By what means is it inaugurated? By what strategies does it expand? The answer is found within Jesus's experience of temptation in the wilderness from Matthew chapter 4. Just like John the Baptist was portrayed in a way that called the Old Testament to mind in chapter 3, the setting of Jesus' temptation is portrayed to parallel Israel's story in chapter 4. Matthew wants us as readers to be connected to this broader backdrop. And so Jesus' temptation happens in the wilderness, just like the wilderness after Egypt and before the Promised Land. He's there 40 days and nights, which echoes 40 years of wandering, And in both cases, Jesus and the people needed provision. Jesus had fasted. The people weren't sure where food would come from in that desert place. And now the devil comes to Jesus with three temptations. And each is basically an offer to bring in the kingdom just on different terms than God wants. He tempts Jesus to be self-reliant so he can be sure to get it done. He tempts him to be super attractive so people just flock to him in his message. He tempts him to wield power to make it happen. Often, this story has been told with a very individual filter, both of Jesus and for what it means to us. But that individualism might miss part of Matthew's message. This is all about the kingdom's arrival and Jesus as king of that kingdom. And we all either join in or live outside of it. So I hope you see, like Matthew saw, that how this kingdom comes, this intentional no to self-reliance, attraction, or power matters for us too. Once you start thinking about this passage as being about how the kingdom comes, not will Jesus individually succeed in resisting the devil, well, then we can notice whole layers of parallels between this first experience and the ways that the rest of us go about living in and in some small but meaningful way expanding this kingdom. Chapter four begins like this, and I'm reading from the NRSV, if you'd like to follow along. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Quick note on if here. This isn't a real if, like the devil isn't sure, but Jesus could prove himself. This is an if that means since, because you are, 
it assumes that Jesus really is God's son. Since you are the son of God, command the stones to become loaves of bread. Not, if that's really who you are, then changing these stones will prove your identity. So the debate is, hey, since this is who you are, bring your own kingdom by providing for yourself. Jesus answers in verse 4, it's written, one doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus's response reveals that the kingdom comes by trusting God to really actually give Jesus what he needs to take care of his body, to sustain him, just like God did for the Israelites way back. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. At first pass, this can seem like it's about protection, being kept safe, that Jesus would throw himself down and wouldn't come to harm, and God would protect him that way. But instead, consider that this is basically a challenge to do some sort of divine magic trick. Do something flashy, Jesus. Put on a spectacle so that people will be attracted to the display and believe you. It'll be all the buzz around the ancient Near East. Hey, did you hear about that guy who threw himself off the temple but angels caught him? I bet he's the Messiah. And Jesus replies and says in verse 7, again it's written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' response reveals that the kingdom doesn't come by creating some magnetically attractive experience. This idea of putting God to the test is asking God to prove God's existence or prove that God is as grand as everyone says by doing things that humans think are grand. That's the idea in there. Jesus is saying that that isn't how this kingdom comes. That it's not that there's some sort of flashy thing that happens and then people want to be part of that experience and then God is somehow in it or behind it or attached to it. Instead, the kingdom comes to people who want God, not the experience. And then God promises that they will indeed find God and have the joy of God's own nearness and presence with them. The account continues in verse 8, where the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I can give you power, the devil says. You can bring your kingdom by a show of power over all these kingdoms and I'll give them to you if you'll just worship me. But the kingdom won't come through power. And you might remember there was actually significant expectation for this, that the Messiah would lead a rebellion to throw off Rome and reestablish Israel without occupation. That idea is sometimes called messianic expectation. But it just means that people had in mind what the Messiah would be like, and power was definitely part of it. In verse 10, Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God. Serve only him. And then the devil left Jesus, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. God's own power, which is certainly greater than any other, but see, God also has this habit of sharing power, displaying it pretty inconsistently, or using it to sneakily reveal the truth to the humble and the unpowerful and the unassuming. And so that power will indeed bring and expand this kingdom. But it's not just that God's power is, well, powerful, but that it's God's. The power takes on the character of the one to whom it belongs. It's the power to wage peace. It's the power to mend broken relationships. It's the power to be sacrificial and know you'll be okay. 
It's the power to be wildly generous and know you'll have enough. And so just to sum up, because, you know, all this time and culture and context can make the Bible feel so distant. And do we even see this kind of stuff today? There are these temptations we see. Temptations to expand God's work and message for people all while depending entirely on yourself or by creating something so attractional that people will be drawn to it and then you label that attractive thing as hashtag blessed because people like it or to grab power and hold on tight because you are going to make this happen. But Jesus says no to it all. No to self-reliance. No to flashy attractions. No to hoarding and lording power. And in his rejections, Jesus draws on scripture in such a way that reminds us, so should we. Let's turn to God and only God. And we're not going to bring the kingdom in ways that don't align with who our God is. Jesus is the kickoff person for this whole kingdom. But he's about to come back from the wilderness. And when he does, he's going to invite others in. And so if Jesus as inaugurator of the kingdom is not faithful in who he is supposed to be right now in these moments, if he does not reject these temptations, certainly then his followers, ambassadors of that kingdom, they won't either. In fact, this chapter ends with the story of Jesus inviting people to be his disciples. He includes fishermen, people who will take care of themselves by sheer grit and determination to be wise on the water and stay up all night if they have to. But to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Jesus says, follow me. And as they say yes to Jesus, they say no to self-reliance, though they don't likely know that in the moment. Jesus includes a tax collector, someone who's basically put their trust in acquiescing to Rome and being compliant with the empire. But to Matthew, Jesus says, follow me. And as a one-two punch against the use of power from the other side, he also includes a zealot, Someone who's put their trust in uprising, overthrowing Rome by force. But to Simon, Jesus says, follow me. And as Matthew and Simon say yes to Jesus, they say no to power. (laughs) And then those two are going to have to learn to eat together. Jesus includes someone who will one day demand a display beyond those women's testimony that Jesus is alive. But to Thomas, Jesus will just show up simply. And there won't be a new, flashier plan. Just the same one from the beginning. Follow me. Jesus' choice to bring and expand the kingdom without self-reliance or hyper-charismatic attraction or power, it disorients these disciples. And we're going to see kind of all the way through the book of Matthew that there is this sense from the disciples, Jesus, you're doing it wrong here You don't tell people not to talk about your miracles. You don't reject the chance to lead a revolt against Rome. You don't teach in parables instead of saying it plain. And there's some overlap here that as you get to know local churches, you might just see some parallels. You have churches that meet all of people's needs, every single one, because they think that's how they represent the kingdom. You have others that are highly attractive and who always are providing amazing experiences that you just can't miss. And still others that are really oriented around the leadership wielding power. And that's how they operate. And those are the things Jesus rejects. And there are and kind of always have been churches whose basic attitude is, let me show you how to market this thing, God. There's a saying that you might have heard, what you win them with you win them too. 
there is an urgency as Matthew begins his story that this all really, really matters. It really, really matters that Jesus was faithful. It really, really matters that people joined in the kingdom of heaven. But we can't lean so far on the first half of the idea, people joining, that we miss the second, the kingdom of God. Not joining something kingdom adjacent or kingdom branded, but that fundamentally it's about joining with God, being united together as a group for God's purposes and enjoying God's presence, not trying to build something different. And wielding any of those three, self-reliance, hyper-attraction, power, would not end up being fundamentally kingdom things. And so here we are, Pomona Valley Church, a little group that wants to follow Jesus into the world together and play its part in this kingdom. And we have these five values that we think can be something like north on a compass for us, guiding us toward the kingdom and helping us say no to things that are maybe just kingdom branded. That's why we say that we're going to value relationships and being face-to-face, even if it's screen-to-screen. But putting our phones down and hearing one another's stories, practicing being known and loved. That's why we have a value of authenticity, that we will be our imperfect, sometimes messy selves, but we're going to keep bringing ourselves to Jesus so that he can make us who we were made to be, rather than imagining that we are somehow supposed to just filter ourselves so that we're really attractive ambassadors of this faith we claim to be part of. It's part of why we have a value of openness, that we would have practices and habits and space that let each of us as individuals, but also as a group, just hear what God might have to say to us so that we can let God be the one to lead us forward in how we are supposed to reflect this kingdom. We have this value of diversity, of honoring God's image in one another and in those who are different than ourselves. And so we would honor God's image in those who are different ethnicities or gender identities or orientations or socioeconomic status than our own. And we would always look and say, you are invited to this kingdom and I respect you as one that God has made and loved. And then we have a value of sacrifice that we would give up some things along the way whether those are resources or preferences or power, we would lay them down so that we might be more likely to be part of the kingdom. If the kingdom is the place where God's goodness and justice expand to all people so that they can flourish, we really hope that these five things would be markers of that, would be ways that we can know if we're being part of it a little bit more than we were before. That is, we practice sacrifice and authenticity, openness, diversity, and relationships. We would find that that helps us become a little bit more of who God would want us to be as people, as a church, and as representatives of this kingdom of heaven to which Jesus has invited us when Jesus said to us, follow me. We're just trying to say yes to that invitation. Just like that group did originally. The invitation to begin to expand this kingdom, this kingdom that is not brought through self-reliance or hyper-charismatic demonstrations or power. And beyond being just a group, I think we all know that there are times that we are also tempted to use these three things. There are times that we find ourselves drawn to self-reliance, that we want to take care of ourselves, either because we aren't sure that God will or because we somehow think that God is pleased with us when we show that we can do it ourselves. 
but God would love for us to depend on God. I think there might be times that we find ourselves wondering if being a little more charismatic, even if it means we're a little filtered, would somehow represent God better to our friends or neighbors, family members, coworkers. And so we might sacrifice actually our authenticity in order to be something that we think would be more attractive. And actually, we don't need that charisma, but we're drawn to it at times. And certainly many of us can find that there are times that we want to control control our lives, control our situations, control our futures. And control, of course, is just a variation of power. The temptations are understandable. And we experience them not only when it comes to who we're going to be as a church, but who we're going to be in our individual lives. And so we return to remembering that Jesus said no. And when Jesus said no, he was not worried that God's purposes would no longer be accomplished in the world. But rather, he was assured that the way we would build this kingdom together how we would win people, would indeed make it more of what it was supposed to be. The place of flourishing, love, goodness, and justice for all of the people that God so dearly loves.